This week, we're speaking with Ryan, co-founder and CEO of Foam. Foam is a fault-tolerant location attestation protocol powered by an incentivized network of low-power radios that offers an alternative to GPS and allows users to control and own their data. The Foam team has also developed Kepler, an SDK for Cosmos Entendement written in Haskell. We start off the episode by diving into the Foam protocol, exploring technical details, mechanism design, and expected use cases, then talk about their experience in the Cosmos ecosystem, the design principles behind Kepler, and what Foam is looking forward to in the upcoming year. Welcome to Interchain FM. I'm Chango Unchained. I'm Christopher, the other co-host of Interchain, and we're here today with Ryan from Foam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on. I'm Ryan, uh, co-founder and CEO of Foam Space, and we are the creators of the Foam Protocol, which is uh, bringing geospatial standards and information onto the blockchain. And we're currently developing what we call proof of location, and a lot of the tools around Cosmos are core to that. So excited to discuss that today. Welcome, Ryan. And so just to break down that a little bit for our new listeners, could you go over uh, each of those pieces, like what geospatial proof of location means and kind of go over your consensus algorithm and how the token ties into that protocol? Yeah, absolutely. So when we first started out working on Foam and having a background in kind of architecture and geospatial systems, we realized that there are a lot of standards and ways that you kind of think about location in the world today before blockchain. So we have things like latitude and longitude or street addresses, the ways to kind of geo-encode information, as well as many ways to visualize that information. And many of us interact with these kind of digital maps on a daily basis. And so as many different vectors of current industries were being explored within blockchain, we realized there wasn't really a set of standards for how do we actually even encode geospatial information into a blockchain. So when we first started out, we developed a standard that we call the cryptospatial coordinate. And this is a way for any smart contract to claim a geospatial address in a kind of interoperable and standard way. So therefore, you don't have one contract with a street address, another with Latin long, and then they don't, aren't able to talk to each other. And for us, that was about over two years ago, we worked on that as a first step of just bringing some sort of spatial standards into the development environment. From there, we built a full stack kind of spatial index visualizer web app that's based on functional programming language called PeerScript, as well as integrations with tools like Mapbox for front end. And we have a REST API written in Haskell in the back end. And this is so that if you have any contract with this standardized spatial information, you could then interact with that and render it on a map. From there, we launched our first product uh, called the Foam Map, which is a token curated registry for points of interest. So people use this geoencoding standard as well as the visualizer. And in that protocol, it's about curating static information, like the name of a restaurant, a name of a building. And you use the Foam token to add that data as well as curate or challenge it. But long term, what we've been building on is what we call proof of location. And that's about how do we actually verify things on chain that happen in the real world and move around. And so with that, we're utilizing a low-power radio solution to do time synchronization over radio and provide a service that is an alternative to GPS. And through that kind of domain, we use Tendermint-based consensus and an area of coverage of these radios, we actually think analogous to a zone in Cosmos. And that's really where the Tendermint and Cosmos ecosystem start to intercept with foam. So how is it more advantageous to use this in a decentralized way than to use centralized GPS like what Google Maps provides? Yeah, so that's how we kind of started thinking about this problem. So GPS works great to figure out where you are as a person, and it works with this system of clocks attached to satellites, and all of these clocks are synchronized. 
But the system is really dumb. So you have these kind of big, dumb clocks in space, and they're just broadcasting, this is the time, this is my name. And you as the end user, when you open your Google Maps, your phone is trying to connect to at least four of these satellites, one for X, Y, Z, and a fourth for time. And through time difference of arrival and some sort of triangulation, that's how you currently figure out your location with GPS. But the system is one directional. Like I said, it's this kind of dumb system where the satellites just broadcast out this information and you on the ground can then determine your location. But the GPS doesn't know where you are. So it's extremely trivial for on your iPhone, let's say, to change your location. And then if you were interacting with a smart contract that required geographic information, you could essentially submit any GPS data you wanted and no one would be able to check if that was accurate or not. So in the foam system, because we have a zone of these use case specific radios running a network, the way that you uh, generate a proof of your location is to physically speak to it, uh, doing a handshake over radio, being in proximity to it. So this digital receipt that you generate, what we call a presence claim, could only be obtained by physically speaking to the zone. Where currently with the GPS system, you could just change your location data and there's no way for anyone else to check is that accurate or not. Makes sense. Can you describe the set of actors just for clarity in this protocol? So certainly there are users who want to produce proofs of their location. There are, I guess, zone anchors who are running these radios. There's some, is the blockchain separate? Is it run by the zone anchors? Are there any other actors? Yeah, great question. So zooming in, uh, we have what we call a zone of coverage, and those are run by zone anchor radios. Say you need at least four of those to establish a zone. And in this system, each zone itself is its own Tendermint blockchain. And what they're using this blockchain for is submitting all these timestamps and the time sync protocol they're running. And in theory, they're eligible for earning new mining rewards for running that correctly. And then a customer, a location customer, like a car or a person who wants to obtain this presence claim would broadcast to the zone, can you include my message in your logs? And that would constitute their presence claim that they pay a fee for. Additionally, we have different kinds of actors like a verifier. So does the zone anchors need to provide data availability and have their individual tendermint chain available for inspection? Uh, we have other kind of mobile verifiers that may be able to challenge different zones, et cetera. But right now, as we're not currently building with IBC, we're kind of focusing on zones and isolation and using the Cosmos SDK for that. Right. How do I determine uh, if there are many different zones in different places and presumably sort of especially concentrated each zone is in one place? How do I determine which zone I ought to query for a food location as the end user? Yeah, great question. So assuming you trust all the zones around you, it's not going to matter uh, which you want to, which ultimately picks up your transaction. But I think that touches on the question of how, do you, how can you trust the zone in the first place? And there are a few ways. One is you can localize yourself based off the radio messages and compare that with another source like GPS, for example. But we really want this guarantees to be on-chain and backed by cryptographic securities. So we have this concept of like a master list. Uh, we call it like a total foam area reward contract. And to be a valid zone, you need to be recognized by this contract. So we have been imagining that you have some sort of initial zone of coverage, like a genesis zone that is established in some sort of decentralized ceremony that everyone's satisfied with. So if everyone agrees with this, that this one zone is trustworthy, now any congruent zone, their radio signals overlap with that trusted one. So you're able to determine that they are where they claim to be. But then that touches on the question of how can you trust a zone that appears in the middle of nowhere? And that's where this other actor comes in that I didn't speak about yet that we call the mobile verifier. And the idea is that this new zone in isolation needs to attract enough people who have already purchased claims in trusted zones to come attest to theirs. 
And once they pass some sort of threshold, they would be considered a valid club. Interesting. So a sort of web of trust style uh, location zone bootstrapping. Yeah, so you could join like the topographic network of foam zones, but geographically be isolated. So it sounds like right now there are, well, at least two distinct blockchains involved, right? I guess several Tenderman instances, one for each zone, and then this master list on Ethereum. Is that right? Do they interact at all? Or are they just separate systems that the end user queries with you know, separate HTTP endpoints or whatever? This is still an open design area and really plays into how we may utilize IBC. So currently right now, the foam network lives on Ethereum. And so to basically interact with these zones in the first place, we need a way to connect to Ethereum. So that's where we're looking for the PEGI project for that. But then uh, within each individual zone, we want zones to be able to communicate with each other. And that's where we have IBC working as well. We can get into after, but we've just finished the Kepler project, which is the Haskell-based Cosmos SDK. And we're really kind of proud of being able to own our systems that we build on. And so for this mining logic, master logic list, for us, it might be more straightforward to develop that uh, within Cosmos and have it be its own zone. And then you could exit and enter the system back to Ethereum as needed, as opposed to the mining logic happening on Ethereum. But that's kind of still open to be designed. Right, right. Well, hopefully IBC will uh, connect all of the above chains and thereby provide you the maximum number of possible options. Absolutely. This is a very interesting new use case that I actually hadn't thought of, you know, because when you think of using IBC initially, you're thinking about asset transfers, like digital asset transfers, whereas now with the foam use case, it would be digital location transfers, would you call that, between blockchains? Yeah, more or less. I mean, how you then transfer the data, it all kind of looks like a token at the end of the day, but that's exactly that. We kind of want to transfer these location proofs. So if I've generated this proof as a user on this foam zone, which is a Cosmos zone as well, and then I'm trying to unlock a Pokemon or submit some proof to the Uber app to get paid, that might be happening on a different chain. So I'm going to want to have this kind of fraud proof attestation I purchased be available for some other application. And that's where IBC may play a role because where I purchase this location proof might not be where I want to reveal it. Could you clarify the connection between the token, what it does, and the proofs of location? You know, how does how does the token tie into location proofs and how does that interoperate uh, within this system that you're building? Uh, yeah, great question. So primarily, we see foam as a supply side, like work-based token, almost uh, analogous to like a taxi medallion. Mm-hmm. And so to operate these foam zones, uh, you need to enter into a service level agreement, which will be a smart contract. And so that contract will essentially be a staking contract where you need to stake foam tokens. And you're, for example, saying I'm opening this zone for six months, and I promise to follow the protocol correctly and not have any downtime. I know that Chris has spoke a lot in the past about shared security in these systems, and that's something we certainly may be able to utilize. But right now, we have each zone anchor as the actual then validator for that Tendermint chain. And so if they violate the proof-of-stake rules, they could be slashed. Or when we have our extra level of verification and they inspect the logs, they could say, hey, you know, these timestamps violate the laws of physics. Therefore, you were submitting incorrect timing data, which means your location data can't be trusted. Therefore, you could be slashed. On the flip side, we have an inflationary aspect where you can essentially earn more foam tokens by contributing to the supply side of the network. Then the zones themselves can set their own fee rate for the presence claims, and they could charge foam, they could charge some other sort of stable token. 
And what that kind of fee market looks like is really going to be about the operational overhead for the zone operators. So while the hardware may have a constant cost, the cost to get access to a rooftop or a building in Palo Alto is probably going to be really expensive because the real estate there is really expensive versus in a developing country. So each zone then is, has the ability to kind of set their presence claims fees how they would like, and they could charge any token for that. So foam is really used to kind of secure the integrity of all the zone operators and reward them. And just to cool. clarify, what's on the demand side? Um, yeah, so the demand side are then users that want to essentially generate these proofs. You can think of it like a basket of receipts that you have and you can keep private. And then as a general purpose protocol, any application could then hook into Foam and use the example of a game like Pokemon. They may say, for you to unlock this rare gaming item, you must go to these five random corners in New York and then submit those claims. An Uber app could say, for you to get paid at the end of your ride, you must submit you know, eight of these proofs along your route. And so the demand side then, that's going to be up to us or as a company to develop customer relations and demonstrate use cases. But the idea is any application can constitute the demand side. Speaking of use cases, uh, I'm curious, which, maybe name a few use cases, do you think are most interesting or do you think benefit most from the fault tolerance of these location claims? I think that for us in industrial asset tracking, where um, security is of the highest priority, and kind of current market solutions don't really cut it in terms of even if willing to take the risk that your GPS won't be spoofed, GPS is extremely power intensive. So some of these systems only allow like one check-in per day. And we have a lot of just examples of even nation state level spoofing, theft, cheating. And so that's where this kind of like fault tolerance, but also auto audibility and data sharing standards is really important to these kinds of actors. And that's strictly kind of in an industrial setting. But I think that proof of location can also play a large role in decentralized systems. So a system like Cosmos could start to enforce geographic distribution of validators. Or a system like Filecoin proves that data is stored on different hard drives, but they can't actually prove those hard drives are in different buildings. So I think that you could also start to enforce kind of geographic decentralization in validator networks as well. So I really like this idea. I mean, I think that reliable, fault-tolerant Oracle services for particular kinds of data are a huge problem, like maybe the hardest outstanding problem at this point, harder than some of the technical problems, just distributed systems aside. Are there other categories of protocol like phone, say providing proof of you know, some other kind of data point you might be able to ascertain with a mobile phone, but that usually isn't fault-tolerant, like proof of medical data or proof of time is easy enough to get if you have some you're willing to trust the clock on some chain, but uh, other other protocols in this category of like data kind specific Oracle. I have to think about it a bit. We see kind of foam as essentially providing a location specific hash function almost found in nature, but like synthetically placed through these network providers. I don't really have an analogy to another project off the top of my head, but it's a good question. A use case that comes to mind right now with the coronavirus scare is that on Reddit the other day, I saw Google Maps had changed the location of the laboratory where there's the alleged coronavirus bioengineered or at least researched in Wuhan. And so so there was there was evidence on Google Maps to say that Google actually went and changed the, the location without notifying anybody. And so do you see this as a potential use case of Foam's censorship resistance piece 
to like mapping data? Yeah, absolutely. But one thing that's important before I answer is uh, to separate mapping data from real-time location tracking. And I know that most people's experience with GPS is actually on Google Maps. So your blue dot, you see it on the map. So it's easy to conflate the two. So the system I've been describing with the radios and the zones is to track things in real time. So like a protester or a person at a hospital. But the product that we've already launched uh, that's live on Ethereum today called FoamMap uh, directly tackles that issue. So in the FoamMap protocol, you need to stake tokens to add geographic information. And this kind of serves as like a latent bounty for somebody to check on that in the future and potentially challenge that and earn the tokens you've staked. And we've already kind of seen like territorial disputes happen on the phone map where people are fighting over an island in like the Chinese Sea between South Korea and Japan and someone's adding it as a Japanese island and then someone's challenging it, re-adding it as a South Korean island. And so that's kind of the first step that we took of bringing geospatial data on chain. And we're meant to have this kind of censorship resistant, but incentivized open source curated verified data set. So if we had a truly decentralized map that everyone relied on, like foam, that would kind of not allow an entity like Google to just change borders on a whim or move medical facilities due to political pressure. And we see that the foam map system really plays really nicely with the foam location system, because at the end application, they may want to reference a point on the map in their logic of you must produce a proof near this point. And so in the end game, the map and the location system play really nicely together in the same way GPS and Google Maps work as kind of one product. And in this system, how does someone arbitrate the decision between territorial disputes? Like who ultimately makes the decision on this about, about like what the source of truth is? So currently that's on some token holders and currently anybody with enough tokens can initiate a challenge and then start a vote. But we all kind of know the pitfalls of like on-chain voting and reputation. And we've already kind of experienced some edge cases of, you know, people trying to game the system. And there's been some really creative ideas of how to combat that. So one is uh, actually using on-chain reputation. So you can't actually initiate a challenge or you can't even actually vote unless you've added X amount of data. When we have the foam location system, you could maybe say, hey, you can't actually challenge or vote about this laboratory in Wuhan unless you can prove you've been to Wuhan in the last year. And so I think there's a lot of room to add a lot of robustness for really tightening the controls on who can mm -hmm. really act in the system. So what if there was, let's say, a bunch of Chinese foam users who want to sort of dominate the system through like you know, proof of work, right? Like proof of all of these people owning foam tokens and staking real-time data in the last like year of foam. And then let's say there's not enough Japanese foam token holders who are in the system. And then now now all of the Chinese holders are are voting with their reputation to say that this island actually does belong to China, let's say. In this scenario, what do you do? It's a good question. We haven't come up to that scenario exactly, but I think it touches on a lot of generalized problems with voting and reputation and how do you actually distribute voting rights in an equal manner. But I think that as an open source protocol that is meant to be a kind of source of truth or about objectivity in the world, if it can be quantified that somebody is attacking the system, there are upgraded parameters or, you know, Japanese users themselves could fork the protocol and try to maintain one that they felt as integrity. Because I think you could get stuck in this endless voting loop of each side challenging and voting each other forever. On a different tack, but also one perhaps with political implications, is it possible for end users who are producing proofs of location to preserve their privacy? 
Is there some way I can produce a proof that you know, maybe I'm in some range or not in some particular spatial box, but while not revealing anything about my exact location? I right, hope this answers your question. But for us, I think that really falls on wallet innovation. And we're excited to talk to a lot of different potential wallet providers. Why I say wallet is because your presence claim is going to be associated with your public key. And if you reveal then one presence claim, let's say to a game app, you don't want to necessarily reveal all of your past location claims because maybe some of them are you know, relevant for a court case or some police investigation. And so I think where wallet innovation may come into play is key rotation and having different sets of public keys and being able to easily generate them in the background so that you can easily reveal one claim to one application without giving them access to the rest. In terms of trying to limit your accuracy, that might be kind of some higher order obfuscation on chain. That makes sense. But even for the case of a single proof to a game app, is there some way I could you know, receive these signed attestations from the zone anchors, I guess, which I presume is part of the protocol, and then produce a zero-knowledge proof that they satisfy some like requisite location property that the game app has provided me with and send that proof to the game app without actually revealing what my location was. Yeah, that's definitely something possible. And we're extremely excited to further explore different kind of zero knowledge setups. And I think ideally that you can think of that as some sort of modular tool that could be utilized. So I like kind of almost like a mixer where I like submit my proofs there and they're able to securely tell the app that, hey, they were there without revealing certain amounts of information. Yeah, yeah. I personally find it quite terrifying that uh, not only have to Google and probably at this point, many governments have access to everyone's location at nearly every time, but we also seem to have accepted this. So I hope that we will uh, see a trend in the other direction, perhaps powered by zero knowledge, decentralized proofs of location. Yeah, we've seen some promising developments in New York City. I don't think this bill was passed, but the first bill was proposed to actually outright ban the sale of location information without user consent. And I know Apple is taking steps to notify users more and more when apps are tracking their location. And we think that presence claims are kind of the core offering here. And we want to open up a way that people can have sovereignty over their location data, but also be able to opt in when they want to sell that data and ideally have that happen in a privacy preserving way. So going back to the supply and demand context of the foam token, what is the value of the token contingent on? Is it on the onboarding of the number of applications that use this location data or something else? I think that you can, of course, measure network health by like the number of participants in the supply side. But I think the ultimate KPI is going to be on number of presence claims being produced and how you're going to like be able to value staking foam tokens into these work agreements is on what kind of fees you're going to be able to earn. And so I think that the demand side and having a healthy fee market and building up applications that want this service is kind of really going to be key. And additionally, staking your tokens give you rights to mining rights, as well as like being a stakeholder in the system and uh, voting rights. We're currently not similar to ETH2. We're currently not using like a delegated system. So the idea is if you're not using your phone tokens to contribute work to the network, you should maybe give them to someone who is. And where does one go to stake these phone tokens? So that's going to be in this kind of parent chain system, whether that's Ethereum itself or some sort of master zone in Cosmos. And that will be where this kind of total foam area reward contract lives, the contract that keeps track of which zones are eligible for rewards, where the service level agreement contracts are entered into. And that kind of keeps track of is your foam zone of radios valid or not.
in practice, that'll be probably like a web interface that you can interact with and stake your tokens easily. Cool. Shall we dive into some of the technical projects uh, and architectures you've been working on? Sure, happy to. So I guess my first question, and here I'm a little bit of a biased questioner, so I'm going to try to fight my bias because I'm already a fan of functional programming, but why functional languages? They're not that popular in the blockchain space. You said you started out with PureScript and then you've been doing a lot of work in Haskell. How did you come to that choice? Yeah, so at Foam, uh, we happen to be a fully functional pr uh, programming team. And how we came about that, it wasn't ex exactly by choice, but my co-founder and CTO, Christopher, he was one of the first employees at Consensus. And his first project was actually working on the Haskell client for Ethereum uh, and later went to work on that with a company called BlockOps. And a number of other people who worked in that domain happened to come work at Foam. So we had kind of just strong biases ourselves uh, around Haskell. But then additionally, we just, PureScript is pretty niche as well as a new language. And our team just happened to get really excited about that. And from it, we were also just getting very frustrated working in the Java traditional Ethereum environment due to just not understanding what the errors are or not having this kind of parametric upgrades so your system cannot break when you make an upgrade you know, months down the line. And so we've over time developed like a fully functional programming alternative Ethereum stack. So instead of Web3.js, we have a PureScript Web3 and we maintain that library. We also have a PureScript Web3 generator. And then instead of Truffle to deploy contracts, we have a tool called Chantrell, which is also written in PureScript. And instead of a test RPC clients, we have a tool called Clickbait, which allows you to spin up a Docker image of any Ethereum blockchain and pre-allocate libraries and account balances. And so these are all general purpose libraries and tools that we maintain. They're not spatial specific uh, or specific to Foam. And some projects have begun to integrate them. And I can go into you know, the philosophy of statically typed languages and the security guarantees and all the things you kind of get for free in terms of maintenance over time so we can very easily upgrade everything. Using that stack is how we power the Foam map today. And in the last year, as we started working more thoroughly on Foam location, and we knew we wanted to use Tendermint consensus uh, mm -hmm. for the zones, we started to build a Plasma-based demo using the Cosmos SDK. And just because our team has so much experience in these functional programming languages, uh, they were a bit frustrated that time Cosmos SDK was monolingual and Go was the only option. And so we thought that our system would be way more robust and secure if we were able to work in Haskell. And from there, that's where we decided to apply for a grant from the Interchain Foundation to open up the language options in the Cosmos SDK. And that became a project called Kepler, which is the official Haskell ABCI implementation. Fantastic. How has it been working with Kepler so far? Are you using it in test nets or planning on using it to develop these tenement-based zones? Yes, only in the last few weeks did we formally wrap up the Kepler project and have just recently announced it, as you have seen. And we have started building foam zones using Kepler. And so, like I said, we're currently building them in isolation. So anything interchain is being saved for later. But kind of the first step of building like a simple storage app that connects IoT radios to the Tendermint chain, as well as then the logic of how does the zone start, how do zone anchors, you know, join this zone, what is like the block time going to be in this kind of system, and so on and so forth. So we've achieved our goals in being able to provide open source software to the Cosmos ecosystem and empower other developers, but also in doing so empower our team to now very quickly accelerate in our development in zone design. So when it comes to PEGI and IBC usage, if those protocols are currently written in 
go, how would that interact with your Haskell implementation of the SDK? I believe there is also a version being worked on in Rust. Um, I think we're looking to that one as well because we use both Rust as well as Haskell in our stack. Okay, so as long as there is a Rust Peggy implementation, then you're able to interoperate with Ethereum? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I'm probably not the uh, final authority. Right, on there, there are several options. It will likely make sense, independent of language choice, for there to be you know, one or two or at most a few bridges from the Cosmos ecosystem to the Ethereum ecosystem, simply because the light client verification for Ethereum, at least Ethereum 1.x, is relatively expensive. So it makes sense to have that computation happen on only the Cosmos Hub or only a few chains, and then for Foam or for other zones to leverage the verification that's already been performed on the Cosmos Hub, which they can do over IBC to uh, utilize state on Ethereum in their own applications or to send packets to Ethereum using their own applications. So depending on what Foam wants to do, it may not be necessary for them to implement PEG uh, on the zones at all. You could simply utilize the Cosmos Hub's implementation, kind of do whatever state verification logic you need on your zone. But it's also quite possible, I suppose, to find to Rust or to even implement at least the basic IPC stack in Haskell in the future. Very cool. What do you think is the future of functional languages in both your product and in the uh, ecosystem at large? Do you plan on writing additional software in Haskell? Do you think, is it sort of just dependent on what you need for the phone protocol? How can the Tendermint ecosystem better integrate these tools? Well, to start off with the first question, as you said, functional programming is quite uh, niche in its own right, but I think the future is going to be on supporting these kind of low latency, enterprise-grade, production-ready systems. And so you might not see functional programming stacks necessarily powering lending of stable coins, but we think where this kind of like timing is really playing a role and we may have like backhaul constraints and interoperability with 5G edge nodes, for example, for computation and really just having this kind of security guarantees and low latency for telco system is where we see this kind of flourishing, as well as in really robust financial applications that we've seen other teams, digital asset group or the Quorum team work on. And that's kind of seems to be where functional programming is really uh, making its footing in blockchain. We have plans to continue working with the ICF. We have to apply again, but we are interested in actually running Tendermint validation directly on IoT for kind of like low latency based implementation. And that would actually happen in Rust. And something I think we touched upon a little bit in the past, uh, but that's where we're excited to explore. But we're also really encouraged by the amount of activity being funded by the ICF and can take advantage of you know many of these different projects, whether that's generalized Merkle proofs for IBC, et cetera. So I think that we're extremely happy to take contributions from anyone who would like to work on this library, and it's now available for anyone to build it. What led to the name Kepler? It does fit, of course, with Cosmos, but was there a more specific reason? I think that might sum it up. I wasn't in the room when they <laughs> settled on the name. But fair I, think, enough, fair I think the idea all, was... All of your names are quite cute. I think Gentle the idea round. was Haskell ABCI wasn't as catchy. So we needed, to come <laughs> up with, we needed to come up with something. Indeed. Johannes Kepler, right? Very on brand. Can we zoom out a little bit and uh, talk briefly about what stage the phone protocol is in? So it sounds to me like you have some running zones, some running code on Ethereum, for now they are separate. Is it possible to produce these proofs of location? Is that still waiting on further integration? What's the state now? What's next? 
What are yes. your expectations for 2020? So over the last year, an enormous amount of work in parallel to the Cosmos functional programming work went into the actual radio design. And that first demo I spoke about where we used Tundermitten Go, we used really basic off-the-shelf low-power radios. We used a radio called LoRa. But because in this proof of location kind of cryptographic functionality, as well as extreme precision and timestamps is utmost importance, uh, we realized that the kind of just off-the-shelf architecture wasn't enough. And we really moved into this direction of what we describe as a domain-specific architecture of kind of building a device that does one single task um, really efficiently. And that's where you can get huge gains from. So we've then designed this domain-specific architecture to not only use a LoRa radio, but we use um, something called an FPGA, as well as a software-defined radio, which is about converting analog signals into digital and doing this kind of digital signal processing. And that's where we're then able to run all of this kind of proto-buff filters of the timestamps and then run multilateration and be able to push that to like a front-end dashboard. And so the hardware kind of architecture is uh, completed by the end of 2019. And we have been building uh, prototypes at our space in the new lab. And we currently have a test zone that is running. And we're constantly running different timing tests and then working on the localization algorithms and improving them. And as I said, just starting to now connect that to the Cosmos SDK. So those are going in parallel. And we are, for this quarter, going to be setting up a test zone that is outside, so across a much larger area, and continue those tests. And for this year, we're looking to launch the network and make developer kits available to users and uh, be able to launch with, once we start to integrate with IBC and fully test that, probably go the route of some sort of game of stakes style testing game, and then hopefully be able to launch. From a business development perspective, what is FOM's plans to garner network adoption post mainnet launch? Yeah, so long-term, we plan to be a premier network operator ourselves and contribute to the supply side. But we see our role as really facilitating demand through enterprise partnerships as well as pilot projects to demonstrate use cases and facilitate demand to these early network suppliers. And we're fortunate enough to be based in a facility called the New Lab, which is kind of a center for technology here in New York with um, hardware and manufacturing. And that's where we have a lot of ability to connect with things like the city of Brooklyn, as well as very large train corporations, supply chain companies, as well as telcos. Uh, and we're going to be exploring a lot of pilot opportunities there to kind of demonstrate the demand side and pursue customers for the service to actually get the fee market stimulated and show people that there's a new market solution that doesn't currently exist. So we plan to be active participants in the network ourselves. Nice. I'm curious, why the focus on low latency with Tendermint on FPGAs? Is it like required for accuracy or precision of the uh, location claim? I think a number of reasons. One is like the lower latency you have, the more transactions you'll be able to process. And we're at a situation where you might hit physical limits of uh, the RF spectrum being full if you have a lot of actors trying to request these demands. And that delay may add up if they can't process enough due to kind of like block times. But we also think it's important for each zone to actually be aware of the global system and being able to be fed back information from whatever parent chain they're connected to. In additional, we don't yet know how long finality will be and how much kind of computation for third actor checks would be. And so whether you have this additional computation or you have tons and tons of zones and you want every zone to know about the other zones, uh, that's where we think like speed will play a role. Uh, in terms of like finalizing presence claims, but also keeping every zone up to date with the global system. 
So in the end state of foam space, how many zones do you envision um, running? I guess as many as the Earth can fit. But in kind of practical terms, we imagine like 33 zones would cover like the full city of New York, including all the boroughs. And you can extrapolate that to kind of other kinds of cities. But we think that network overlap is really important as well. And so essentially having like robustness of coverage and incentivizing more and more participants. Uh, one component I can add is we have a function that's live today on the foam map called signaling. And that is where you can actually stake foam, not to a point of interest about like a restaurant, but just to a general radius. And that is essentially signaling that you want this location coverage to appear. And the idea is if you set a zone up where there's a lot of signals, you're going to get a bonus in your mining rewards. So you can imagine when the system is live, and let's say everybody's setting up in San Francisco, and you're like, well, that's not great. We actually want coverage in Oakland. You could signal in Oakland, and then the first zone to set up there is going to get proportionally higher rewards. And so the signaling function is a way to try to geographically control where the network grows through kind of capital incentives, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. What would be required in principle to translate the phone protocol or to realize the phone protocol in an interplanetary context? Let's say that in you know, a century or two, humans have a colony on Mars, a colony on the moon, and spaceships transiting fairly frequently in between. And for whatever reason, perhaps just their own entertainment, they want to produce proofs of location. Would that be possible with some zone anchors spread out uh, some of uh, these ships <laughs> among the planets? Is, are there theoretical limitations? Yeah, no, great question. I think foam works amazing uh, off-world, especially due to capital constraints, because it's a lot cheaper to kind of set up a network of radios on Mars or the moon than launch satellites to rotate them. And so each zone is not tied to kind of the Cartesian coordinate plane of the Earth. Of course, they will want to reference known locations so we can have a point of context. But each zone is kind of maintaining a quorum of time and space and able to determine the geometry of the zone. And so the same kind of principles apply, whether that zone is in an abstract space or if they're on a different planet. And then how do we kind of govern that? Uh, similar to how do we trust a zone in the middle of nowhere? They need enough foam tokens attested to them. And then that would be kind of a governance parameter in this master contract that tracks all zones to be able to include ones that claim to be on a different planet. Right. So eventually, you know, in the interstellar context, you might need multiple foam tokens or root name service lists, uh, lest the uh, light speed latency become problematic. Certainly uh, for a while, <laughs> one will be sufficient. Yeah, but in principle, like a zone of radios would work just the same on a different planet than here. And how long of a timeline do you envision this end state finalizing or manifesting? You know, tons of variables, so hard to say, but we would have kind of like deep like halvening and mining rewards. And I think the initial thinking was having that be over like a decade for this kind of like seeding extra incentive to grow the supply side. And uh, I think that's enough time for market actors to be able to test this uh, new solution and determine if it's something valuable to them. And by that time period, then the actual demand for the service should be enough incentive for the supply side as opposed to inflationary rewards. But through kind of governance and different decisions that could, you know, be changed depending on how things really perform. So in a decade from now, can all of us reasonably expect an alternative to Google Maps? Reasonably expect an alternative to GPS. Okay. So in the and future... more than that, right? I mean, GPS doesn't have fault-tolerant proof of location. 
Yeah, so that's why we see it as like a new category and like a value add solution. So regardless of even accuracy, when we're beginning, you're able to do something that is impossible today. I'd like to wrap up by just asking you what anyone could do to help phone. Are you looking for validators? Are you looking for testers, developers to contribute, any or all of the above? Uh, yeah, we're always looking for developers to contribute to our open source libraries, as well as that we have different bounties periodically, as well as a grant program. And uh, this year, we hope that people will be able to contribute by obtaining or building hardware themselves and uh, contributing to test network data. Um, so that's kind of a large milestone where participation will be a lot easier. But in the meantime, if you are a developer or have an application idea, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out or apply to our grant program. And as usual, with every Interchain episode, all of the assets and resources are linked in the show notes, so you can find it there. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on, Ryan, and see you all on the Interchain. Interchain.